Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. Happy Inauguration Day, everybody. It is Whiskey Wednesday, January 20th, 2021. You are listening to Episode 30. Today, we speak with Denny Potter, General Manager and Master Distiller at Maker's Mark. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can, by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> Bless. Cheers. cheers. Whiskey. It's an agricultural product. It's a spirit. And it's a tradition. And like any tradition, it enjoys wealth of history, some of it well-known and often repeated, some of it hidden. And much of what is hidden is hidden in plain sight. Witness the whiskey label. Whiskey drinkers know the most common and their favorites at sight. But few know the stories behind the labels, some of which have quite a story to tell. When 15-year-old John Walker opened a grocery store in 1820 in Kilmarnock, Scotland, little did he know that Johnny Walker, the whiskey that now bears his name, would become the world's best-selling blended scotch. It's excellent, it's everywhere, and instantly recognizable. But the story behind its label is largely unknown. Its now iconic striding man was sketched on a dinner napkin by English cartoonist Tom Brown in 1908. According to brand historian Dr. Nick Morgan, it's the character's lack of clearly identifiable country of origin and station in life. Is he a gentleman? A rogue? A lion tamer? That distinguished Johnny Walker in a crowd of tartan and leather. The brand was available in 120 foreign markets before Coca-Cola made its way to Europe in 1919. Just across the Irish Sea from Scotland sits Ireland and its capital Belfast, home to Bushmills, the world's oldest distillery founded in 1608 by Sir Thomas Phillips. If the Johnny Walker label represents commercial innovation and a global approach to marketing, the old Bushmills label bespeaks permanence, strength, and tradition. So much so that in 2008, the Bank of Ireland honored the brand by issuing notes bearing the image of the old Bushmills distillery. The current Bushmills label features a rendering of the original distillery license, along with the old Bushmills distillery signature pot still, an image that clearly identifies the brand as authentically Irish. In 1953, T. William Samuels Sr., better known as Bill, purchased the Burks Distillery in Loretta, Kentucky. 
Five years later, the first run of Maker's Mark bourbon left the bottling line, and it looks today pretty much the way it looked then, with a striking seal of dripped red wax and oh-so-cryptic markings on its label. Bill's wife, Marjorie Samuels, better known as Marge, was responsible for the bottle's label and signature handcrafted appearance. And by successfully challenging Bill's desire to opt for a less expensive design, she both helped ensure the success of Maker's Mark and single-handedly changed whiskey packaging forever. Up next, we speak with Denny Potter about that Maker's Mark label and its designer, now a Bourbon Hall of Fame inductee, and about maintaining the delicate balance between honoring tradition and driving the innovation at one of Bourbon's most revered brands. Stay with us. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are Cocktails, The Grand Tour, Culinary Quickies, Music and Booze with Mo, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. New shows coming soon include Complete Greek, telling the story of Greek food one dish at a time, and Spirits of Rum, a podcast featuring personalities from the wide world of cane spirits. Find us on YouTube, the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink one taste at a time. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we welcome Mr. Denny Potter. Denny serves as general manager and master distiller at Maker's Mark Distillery in Loretta, Kentucky. Welcome, Denny. Thank you. Yes, welcome. Nice pronunciation of Loretta. I like it. You got it. Spelled Loretta, well, pronounced Loretta. You Very got good. it. Thanks to you, I know yes, this. He, uh, <laughs> he's a master of pronunciation. I get corrected. He often. is. He right in. <laughs> Ever so gently and with. Ever so gently, yes. And with amicable humor. Yes. Of course. Well, Denny, as we always start, we always ask about your whiskey journey. When you were a wee little lad, did you think whiskey is where I want to be? You know, since I'm here in Kentucky, that that's obviously the choice that I want to make. Or were you even raised in Kentucky? Tell us about your journey. Yeah. So I was born in Kentucky. My parents are from Louisville. So we can get in the pronunciation of Louisville as well, if we'd like Louis, to. Louisville. <laughs> Louisville. L-U-L-L-V-U-L-L. Yeah. <laughs> so my parents from Kentucky, I actually grew up in Indiana. But you know, as far as the industry, if you're from the Commonwealth, you probably know somebody that's worked in the industry, does work in the industry. Mm-hmm. And even growing up, I did have some family that worked at Brown Foreman, okay. which is you know, obviously the big distiller and the big liquor company based out of Louisville. Mm-hmm. But you know, for me personally, even though I was pouring drinks from my dad at probably six years old and they were always bourbon, it was never anything that I imagined that I would get into. Tending bar for daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, when dad said, hey, man, I need some uh, three fingers on the rocks. I said, all right, I got you. I can do that. That's easy. Wow. That is pretty easy. <laughs> That's kind of wonderful. <laughs> no, it was. I mean, well, I mean, he told you how much to put in. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. And it is interesting because it's not anything you ever really thought twice about. I mean, bourbon is a part of culture, right? I mean, and I think that's the great thing about bourbon is it's so experiential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that truly is, you know, people always ask me, well, what's your favorite bourbon? You know, this and that. I'm like, who am I with? (laughs) Trust me, I have friends that I'm not getting good stuff out for. Sorry to interrupt. Quick question. Uh, Three of your fingers or three of your father's fingers? (laughs) 
<laughs> he would say three. I knew for me that was pretty much a minimum of four. I might even have to throw two more on there. Okay. So for you, it was a fist. Okay. So a fist, yeah. Yeah, right. You're exactly right. So wait, a fist or a fist? Ah. <laughs> well, and I, because he would drink out of the same glass, I knew where that minimum was. So uh, it was pretty easy. It was just more of three fingers pots because he always, that was my nickname was pots. Oh, so, cute. Uh, yeah. You know, it was something that, and I don't think that I was any different than most people that grow up here, mm-hmm. that bourbon is just part of the culture. And uh, once again, you know, never thought in a million years I would work in the industry. I wanted, I was very passionate about the sciences and I wanted to go into marine biology. That's really what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. and even when I went to college, I went to college, I, was, I went to the state school. So I went to Indiana University because I yeah, grew up in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a big time Hoosier, but uh Little problem for a Hoosier interested in marine biology wanting to go to the state school is there's you're kind of landlocked. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think so, it's a state uh, grant institution. Right, right. So the idea was get my BS in biology, graduate, and then go work on my master's in marine biology, and that's what I set out to do. And and it was just one of those things that you know when I graduated from IU, my wife and I actually went to high school together, and she went to IU as well. And so she's a year older than me, and I love to point that out. But uh, <laughs> Angie the Elder, <laughs> yeah, you know, so she was already out of school. So when I graduated, we knew we were going to get married. So I had student, you know, I had some debt and some other things. So the idea was work for a little bit, pay some of that off, and then really, you know, jump into the whole master's program. And it just one of those things. Life kind of happens, and. Two years out of school, I was still working at Safety Clean as a lab tech, and Safety Clean recycles hazardous waste. So, you know, that's really where I got to know a lot about wet chemistry and the things involved um, when it comes to manufacturing and what happens in manufacturing and how you can identify and process control through data in the lab. And so, you know, I did that for two years and ended up getting a job in the lab at Jim Beam. And that was in January of 98. And of course, you know, I knew about bourbon, had no idea really what it entailed in manufacturing. And what really what I was shocked with was just the allure of it, right? In the, the heritage and the legacy, because, you know, when I started working at Jim Beam that first week, one of the first people I met day one was Fred No. Wow. Mm. And Fred, a really, really good friend of mine, he lives a mile away from me. And then, you know, Fred had basically taken over for his dad, Booker. Well, two days later, they're asking me to take distillate samples to Booker in Bardstown. You know, Jim Beam Claremont's not that far away, you know, maybe 15 miles. So here I am, green as hell in the industry, taking distillate samples down for Booker to taste because <laughs> he was going to approve, you know, what got barreled as Booker's. And also he liked to cook with it. I mean, Booker, you know, he obviously, a lot of us operations guys, trust me, we love the finished product, but a lot of your quality control and what goes on the distillery, you figure out on what you're tasting and smelling coming off the still, because you have to be able to make adjustments based on try to maintain that product quality on the distillate. And so that literally was my first week in the industry. And I quickly forgot about any idea of working in marine biology. Or dolphins. <laughs> well, you still work in liquid. It's just not water. It's the water of life. Well, correct. And actually, in my career, I actually got to kind of dip my toe in 
the salt water when it comes to marine life and things like that, because I did have a three-year stint running a rum distillery in the Caribbean. So oh, fun. I saw that in your bio, but it says nothing about yeah. making rum. And that's on my list of questions. You actually did some rum making, some Prussian rum, no less. Yeah, Prussian rum. Cruja. Yeah, there's another pronunciation for you. You hear that? Cruzan. Oh, right. It's Cruja. Right. Cruzan rum. Yeah, I mean, the way that unfolded was I spent five years at Jim Beam, moved out of the lab after a year into operations. You know, it's one of those things because you learn all the science about what's happening in the operation and you can suggest where they might go look for areas of tweaking this and that. Typically, if they had an opening in operations, they would look to the lab first. And if you had an interest in that, they would afford you the opportunity to move. And so I did. I moved into operations after a year. So did that for five years with Jim Beam and then went over to Maker's Mark. And so in 2003, came over to Maker's Mark. And, you know, once again, you talk about, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the industry for who I've been able to work with and learn from. So, I mean, I come into Maker's. And so obviously, you know, Maker's was started by the Samuels family and, and Bill Samuels Jr. was running the show then. But Little did we know at the time, when I came on board at Makers in 03, we had four master distillers, which would be master distillers all here at the same time. And it was myself, Steve Nally, who Steve is with Bardstown Bourbon, but he was our longtime master distiller here, Kevin Smith and Dave Pickerel. Mm -hmm. And so all four of us were here in the way that I ended up taking over for the distillery at Makers was Steve was retiring. Steve Nally. And so that's when Dave was kind of taking the role of master distiller here. And then, you know, Steve was moving on. He was retiring. Then he didn't retire because he did the Wyoming Whiskey Project. And now he's with Bardstown Bourbon. And so I was running the distillery here for probably six, seven years. And that's what led to we're part of a group, obviously, of distillation companies or liquor companies. And we had acquired the Cruzion brand, but we also acquired the operation down in St. Croix in the USVI. So they came in 2010, they asked me to go down as general manager to kind of help onboard Cruzion. But also we had to spend like 70, $80 million in capital over a three-year period just to build the plant up, um, do some investment there. And so the idea was I was going to go there for three years and then come back to Makers. Because one of the things that I realized pretty quickly, you know, at Makers, Mark, it, I knew no matter what I did in my career that Makers would be the best job I ever had just because of the people, the environment, the brand. I mean, there are so many things that are incredible about this place. But so the comfort of knowing I was going to go down there, learn about rum, learn from the Nelthrips. So, you know, Gary Nelthrip, his dad, Hardy. Right. So Hardy and his uncle started cruising rum and Hardy at this point is in his 80s. And so I'm like, man, this is, you know, this is phenomenal. Plus, I get to come back to Makers. And and so, yeah, so myself and the family, we moved down to St. Croix for three years. You did what we needed to do there, came back. Unfortunately, wasn't able to come back to Makers, Uh, went to another beam operation and did that for about nine months and uh, was approached by Heaven Hill to go work for them. And so in 2013, I left to go to Heaven Hill and it was the first time I'd left the group, right? The Beam group. Mm -hmm. And so I go to Heaven Hill and eventually take over for Master Distiller for Parker Beam and then became vice president of operations for Heaven Hill because they own a lot of other things besides just whiskey. It's a huge portfolio. Yeah, it is. We interviewed Lynn House early in the run of the show. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not just 
you know, the figureheads either that I've been able to work with, it's people like Lynn and Bernie Lubbers. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on for the people that are just so impactful and just so knowledgeable in all areas of our business that I feel like I've been able to work with and just been super lucky because yeah, when I go to Heaven Hill, you know, you've got Parker and Craig Beam, you've got the Shapira family, you've got Lynn, you've got Bernie, you've got so many different people there. It had the best job in the world. I mean, it was a great job. But then in the summer of 2018, Rob Samuels, you know, he had taken over for his dad. And I knew Rob before I left to go to St. Croix, just kind of called up and said, man, you know, would you ever think about coming back? And, you know, I really had to think about it. I'm like, Rob, you know, I never really wanted to leave. The idea was that I was going to come back to Makers. And after we, you know, talked about it for quite a while, and there's a long story behind it, but yeah, I mean, I left probably a dream job to come back to Makers as the general manager and master distiller. So I came back here in October of 18. So it's been a little over two years that I've been back. But all that time, the people that I've been able to work with, you know, so I come back and, you know, Rob's in charge here. And then you've got, you know, Jane Bowie. I'd worked with Jane before, but Jane was now basically running all of our innovation. We weren't doing, we'll talk about Makers 46 because I know we're going to taste it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was one of the big projects I worked on right before I left to go to Crucian. And then I come back and, you know, we've got, well, we're doing cast strength. We've got this private select program, which was phenomenal. We got this wood finishing series. And these are all things that, you know, Jane had worked on with Rob. And so, I mean, it's just been, I've just been extremely lucky with who I've been able to work with. That's one of my questions is Jane's role. Got to meet Jane. She was here in LA and Makers Mark has a director of innovation. That's not something most brands carry. Talk to us about that. That fits, as it were. How does that work within the brand? Well, and I think a lot of people that where that title exists usually resides on the marketing side. How are we going to repackage what we already do to expand the market rather than how do we innovate the product? Right. And I think Jane kind of started on the commercial side, but she has just a genuine curiosity about all things operations. And she kind of self-taught. And we're a pretty flat operation here at Makers. Mm -hmm. We don't have a ton of people. We're not siloed. We all wear a bunch of different caps. And I think that that's kind of what happened with Jane is, you know, after she had an international stint for us, and then when she came back, she just was very curious about barrels and wood finishing and wood technology, you know, and all these things. And I just think that, you know, working with Rob, they just, they were able to build upon some of the things that Kevin and I had worked on with the 46 project and really grew it out from there. But so when you hear about innovation for makers, we're not a typical innovator. You know, a lot of times innovation is about looking at what's going on in the market and then coming back and figuring out what we're going to do. For us, we're very inward focused in how we innovate because, you know, we're a brand that's been around for a long time and, and we get that people are super interested in new things, you know, things that are are different. But at the same time, you know, we've been around for 66 years and we do the things that we've done the same way throughout that time. There is a lot to be said for that, but how we innovate, understanding that our core liquid that was first distilled in 1954 in the vision that Bill Sr. and Margie had back then, that hasn't changed. So how can we build upon that? Just like with Bill Jr., And Makers 46, he didn't want to bastardize what his parents did. He just wanted to build something of his that kind of amped up what his parents did. Just like what Jane has worked on on the innovation side with wood finishing, all of that liquid is core Makers liquid. It is core classic, what we call classic Makers. When you dump it out of that barrel, we can send it straight over to bottling, cut it to 90 proof, and you've got classic Makers. Or you can take that, 
utilized wood finishing techniques, which obviously she has really helped spearhead working with Independence Dave and build all these different products with that core liquid. So we're not looking to go out and change what we've done for 66 years. How can we build it, enhance it, and can continue to give people what they're interested in without changing our story? And so it's just kind of evolved into a role that's really rooted in operations. But because of her background with commercial, I mean, it's a natural fit. There's probably not too many people that can do what she does with that role and bridge those two areas because mm-hmm. she can handle both. So yeah. it's really, yeah, she's our director of innovation and for the most part, our master blender for sure. Wow. Yeah. 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 Very cool. And she's also very much a firecracker. <laughs> Jane and I have a very interesting relationship you know, obviously, we're really good friends. We work well together, but man alive, can we get in some fights? <laughs> I think, people, I mean, neither one of us take it personal, but I think sometimes people are put off about how we talk to each other. And uh, so you're like siblings. <laughs> if you want a really interesting podcast, ask us to do one together, and you really only have to ask one question, and we'll talk for 55 minutes. Hey, get her on the phone right now. We'll do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a point counterpoint discussion. So, yeah. Actually, she is on our get-to list, so we hope to and look forward to having her on the program. I mean, she'll tell you she's much better than me, and I will call bullshit on that every time, but (laughs) that's all right. If she's sitting right here, we would have that argument as well. That's wonderful. That's funny. So, about the brand, 1954. Yeah. What was the thrust in 1954? Did it grow out of passion? Was the Samuels, Samuels Sr., did he come out of a whiskey tradition? Talk to us about that. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, I mean, you're basically setting the perfect base for this conversation. So, yeah, so you had Bill Sr. and Margie. Bill Sr. was a sixth-generation distiller within his own family. So that's what he did his whole life. That's what he grew up with. Well, back in the 40s, you know, they were making their own family whiskey, right? They had their own recipe. Uh, They had their own family distillery in Deetsville, Kentucky, the T.W. Samuels Distillery. They were making a product called T.W. Samuels, which is his name. Mm -hmm. The issue that Bill Sr. had was the family whiskey didn't have a great reputation. And I would say that probably whiskey at the time back in the 40s may not have had, you know, specifically American whiskey, a great reputation. The reputation was it's something you drank quick to get drunk quick. You did (laughs) shots. So T.W. Samuels, so a grand sixth generation distiller. Sixth generation. So you can imagine, you know, it's not, you have to have a lot of patience to make whiskey, right? I mean, you spend all this money up front for grains, and barrels, and process, and labor. You distill it, then you throw it in this barrel and you sit back for, you know, hopefully four years, if not longer. And then all of a sudden it gets dumped out. The only way people want to drink it is to drink it really fast by doing shots. <laughs> so it can be a bit demoralizing. And so, you know, he and Margie, decided to sell the distillery and also everything that they were bottling at the time. So, you know, they sold the distillery and, you know, as we've said that Heaven Hill ended up with that label, but they, they didn't initially get it. It kind of changed hands a few times. So you fast forward, you know, they've been out of the industry for a few years and I think they just realized that whiskey making is their passion and they wanted to get back into it, but they didn't want to do what they did before. And so they started out with the idea of we want to create a sipping whiskey, a sipping bourbon, something you want to enjoy with your friends. Mm -hmm. And Bill Sr. knew he couldn't do that with the old recipe. Mm -hmm. So that's when he reached out to his industry friends, the Van Winkles, the Beams, the others, and really experimented and came up with the mash bill that we use today, which is a weeded bourbon mash Mm -hmm. bill. So they moved Mm -hmm. away from the old recipe, which was rye-based, to a weeded bourbon mash bill. Mm -hmm. And so in 1954, they did the very first barrel 
with our new mash bill, which we run, that's what we run today, which is seventy mm-hmm. percent corn, sixteen percent wheat, fourteen percent malted barley. Okay. It, well, and I skipped something there. They bought the distillery here in fifty three. Okay. So you know, here in Loretto, this distilling site's been around since eighteen oh five. Wow. So they bought the distillery in nineteen fifty three. Did the new recipe in nineteen fifty four, and then immediately they knew. Well, they had a problem because typically. People, distillers would name and package whiskeys after themselves because it would give it a good reputation in the market. Like, well, if that guy's, if he's distilling it and he puts his name on the bottle, it's got to be good, right? Or mm-hmm. he's standing by that product. Well, the problem was they no longer own the rights to the T.W. Samuels name. So that's where Margie was a genius. And she said, Bill, you know, you focus on the liquid. I'll work on the package. So the first thing she got to work on was how can we tie this back to our family, back to the Samuels family? And Margie collected Fine English Pewter, and she knew that on the back of Fine English Pewter would be a symbol, a mark. Yep, yep, yep Made yep. it without using a name. And so she's like, that's it. It's called a maker's mark. I need to create a maker's mark for this bottle. And that's how she designed that SIV with the star that's on every one of our bottles. And it stands for Samuel's fourth generation commercial distiller. And the star represents Star Hill Farm, which was the name of the distillery in our location. Now, the big issue with that was he was sixth generation, Uh right? But when they submitted the paperwork and they got the license back, they flip-flopped the Roman numeral and it was going to be $500 to reprocess and they were like, forget it. We're good with, with four. So it's, Aww, that's too bad. Yeah. I mean, so that's how they ended up with the SIV instead of the SVI. And then, so, you know, once they had that, then obviously Margie's like, well, we got to call it something. You can't just have a symbol on the bottle. Right. And the more they were working through names, she always talked about, well, whatever it is, it really has to highlight, reference, lift up our maker's mark. The maker's mark has to be what this is about. Well, then she was like, hey, well, why don't we just call it maker's mark? So, um, so they got that. She designed the, the shape of the bottle. She designed the font that's used on the bottle. And then the most important thing that she came up with was the wax. The wax top. Yep. That's my favorite part. Yeah. And the inspiration for that was, you know, at the time, fine cognacs were dipped in wax, right? But they were mainly dipped in wax so that they could be shipped and you didn't have to worry about the bottles leaking. But Margie recognized that it had a very premium look to it. So she mocked up a package and showed it to Bill. And, you know, Bill's looking at it and immediately he's like, all right, you know, I'm good with most of this. But he goes, we can't do the wax. <gasps> no, it's going to be labor intensive. It's going to be too expensive. We're not going to do it. And then Margie literally was like, Bill, the deal <laughs> was your liquid on package. The wax is going to stay good for her. Go, Margie. Go, Margie. Yeah. Go, 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 Margie. Oh, you're absolutely right. Thank God. Because, you know, literally in that very short time period, the two most important decisions ever made. For us, and the reason why we all feel we're still around was change the mash bill to go to sweet, smooth, a sipping whiskey. So the weeded bourbon mash bill and the fact that the wax remained because the wax is so iconic. And, they, and, and those two things work extremely well together because people will see the wax. They gravitate to it. They will buy that bottle because of the wax. But if they don't like what's in the bottle, they'll be done. So you automatically create that draw of getting people to get that first bottle. Then if when they like the liquid, it just works. And so, I mean, the wax is so iconic that, we, you know, we have billboards 
here in the state of Kentucky, right off the interstates, that'll just have three drips of wax on it. It will not say Maker's Mark anywhere. Love it. And everybody knows what it is. Because yeah. it's iconic. So yeah. it really is. I mean, obviously they had no idea how iconic, but th- I think they thought, I mean, they thought that it was a great idea. I just don't think they had any idea how big it would become. And yeah. And so literally that first bottle and Bill Jr., Bill just turned 80 this past summer. Bill still has the very first bottle that we ran on the bottling line in the 1950s. Wow. And it's signed by, I think, the 12, 13 people that worked here. Mm. And what's funny about that, there are signatures on that bottle that their family members, it's a multi-generational operation. Their family members work here still. So, but that bottle looks pretty much identical to any of the bottles we have running down the line today. Mm. And so it's really unique. So that's, yeah, that's how we got started. And, and that's pretty much all we ever had until 2010. That's the only um, thing that we ever had. Sometimes we wait till near the end to taste. Yep. Well, I think we need to do that now. Yeah, sometimes we taste as we go. Yeah, we can roll with. Yeah, given the evolution of the brand, Carrie, I mean, I think you agree. We should taste as we go through the brand's yes, growth. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So let's start. So I'm guessing we should let's start with the Maker's regular. <laughs> yeah, that's what we call our Maker's Mark Classic, right? It legitimately is 95 percent of what we do because it's all we did for 55 years. And, you know, what we love about this and what I'll say, and I know I'm biased when I talk about Maker's Mark, but one of the things that I will say, and I don't, it's hard to prove me wrong on this, is <laughs> I think it's one of the best universal bourbons on the market. What I mean by that is you can grab a 750 ml of Maker's Mark and you can take it anywhere. If you're going to a holiday party, a house party, a football tailgate, mm-hmm. and you've got a bottle of Maker's Mark, if people are inclined to drink whiskey, they're going to, that maker is going to check the box. Mm-hmm. If you like it neater on the rocks, if you like it in a classic cocktail, if you like it with ginger ale or ginger beer or Coke, it's going to do all of that for you. So it's, I mean, it's just an easy thing to take. I took a liter bottle to a Christmas party three years ago and it was gone within one hour. Wow. Right. Because it is, I mean, because people will pour it multiple ways. And so what this product is, you know, we age for six summers. So we're pretty much six years old. We bottle, we say fully mature instead of putting an age statement on. But the idea behind it is very sweet, smooth, clean, crisp, no bitterness. Mm-hmm. Right? No, indeed. Lots of spice, though. Yeah. We want yeah. to finish on the tip of the tongue. You're going to get those things. You're going to get the vanilla. You're going to get the caramel. But it's just a very smooth, no burn type of bourbon. Mm-hmm. I'm going to interject here and let you know that this actually my introductory whiskey. When I was in college... You know, back then I was drinking wine coolers and mudslides and adorers and like. And after I moved to Los Angeles, my best friend from college came down for a visit and we went to what's the name of that place um, that was in Swingers? Um, Come on, guys. Swingers. Uh, God, I know the movie. I'm afraid to say. Can't help you. I'll think. I know the film, but can't help you. Yeah, no, um, the Dresden. So we went oh, to the, the Dresden, Dresden room yes, uh, watched, in Los Feliz. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we went and we watched the piano player and everything that was on the movie. They were there. And then afterwards, we went down the street to this other bar. And my friend was like, Carrie, you got to get into whiskey. I'm like, I got to get into whiskey. I was like, why? And he's like, oh, that's great. First, you got to start out with your maker's mark. Then you go up to like the bookers. And then you go up to the Knob Hill, Knob Creek, not Knob Hill, the Knob Creek, you know, and then if you start to really getting into these higher end things, then you get into scotch. And I was like, dude, I don't know about this, (laughs) but that's a maker's mark. And I was like, that's not bad. Okay. And then what I really liked about it was the next day. And I drank a fair amount of it. And the next day I felt fine. And I was like, oh, that's new. <laughs> so 
Whiskey became my drink. Right. Carrie, if you were slamming mudslides, I get it. I get it. Yeah, you're probably not going <laughs> to hangover. Yeah, and calories, those mudslides, but so good. You hit upon something, <laughs> and it's an extremely common theme. People that enjoy makers, have drank makers, are fans of makers, they always have a story about who introduced them to makers. Really? And I think that's why our brand has been so successful is because it's a bit, it is experiential and it, there is always a story because, I mean, there is a natural progression, right? I mean, of what you want to try, what you want to drink, what you want to like. And makers has always been a great thing to transition to as you become more professional and you're in that setting with, you know, you're having dinner instead of doing shots, you know, and you're sipping. And it it really goes in line with how Bill Sr. and Margie looked at the brand back then when they really wanted to change the family recipe to, and it's, there is so many stories about people and how and who introduced them to it, whether it was a bartender, their dad, their mom, their best friend. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it, yeah. It's funny because my friend, Matt, who's the one who introduced me to it, he finally eventually did move back down to Los Angeles and he's also in filmmaking. And he now says, yeah, the student far surpassed the master. Like now he comes to me and asks me questions because he is so nowhere near my level. (laughs) (laughs) My maker's origin story, as it were. I knew of makers. I had drunk makers, but it didn't really mean a lot to me until Dave Pickroll started working with what's now the Cocktail Collection. We became friends and he is the one who really introduced me to makers. I believe it. And of course, you know, and this was when he was running Whistle Pig. Yep. And as you know, the man had fingers in many pies. Anyway, he introduced me to this in a, you know, a deep way. So, you know, today's special for any number of reasons, but uh, it feels very family. Yeah. This experience talking to you today and sipping through. Well, I couldn't put into words everything that Dave meant to me personally and professionally. You know, Dave hired me. That's how I got into makers. And then the first time or the second time? This is the first time. So when I knew Steve was retiring, I went and talked to Dave because I was basically running our quality control lab. I was our our quality manager and also our environmental manager. I knew Steve was retiring and I went to Dave. I'm like, Dave, I said, I want to run a distillery. It's what I've always wanted. I have operational experience. I love working with and through other people in operations. Give me a shot. I'll continue all the quality stuff, all the environmental stuff. And I mean, it took maybe Dave about five seconds to say, all right, you got it. <laughs> nice. And then, I mean, we had so much fun. I mean, for the longest time, it was just me, Dave and Kevin. We were our taste panel for the longest time. What a terrible job that must have been. We didn't have that many people. And so every day ended with a happy hour. We were pretty happy. Let's, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, even when Dave moved on and like you said, I mean, Dave ended up doing everything that he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And that was honestly, as far as somebody that loved the industry and wanted to be in it, be immersed in it and meet everybody he could, that Mm -hmm. is Dave. There is nobody that loved this industry more than Dave. People will never know how many brands he was responsible for, for developing and advancing. And I feel like his last five to eight years, he did exactly what he wanted to do. And I don't know that too many of us could say that. And obviously he passed way too young, but had Dave known, like, I mean, he would have said, yeah, I'll take that script. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, and and Dave was just an incredible storyteller and and just an ambassador, not just for makers, but all the other distilleries that he had a hand in after he left here. Right, right, right. Right. So 2010. Yeah. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit. Which is the next one I should be opening? We're going to do 46 next. 46. Okay. So fast forward, I come on board in 2003, right? So basically, Bill is running everything. Then you have Dave. I'm reporting into Dave. And then, you know, I'm taking over the distillery. And all Bill ever said to me, 
he said a lot of things, but the thing that really <laughs> with me the most was he's like, don't F it up. He's like, don't F it up. He's like, my parents started this, you know, we do this mash bill. This is how we do things. And operationally, there are a lot of things, you know, people will claim to be handcraft. I don't know that people can be claim to be handcrafted like we are. Mm-hmm. And he's like, just do not bastardize what we've always done. Don't come to me. He's like, if you're one of these distillers that wants to do 20 different things, he goes, you better not come to me because I'll fire you. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm good. Yeah, I just want to learn. I just want to learn. That's all I'm here for. So you can imagine mm-hmm. in 2008, David already moved on and Kevin was our plant manager and I, I reported into Kevin. So Kevin was our master distiller. I was our assistant master distiller. And Bill walks into Kevin and I and he's like, I think I want to do something different. What? And so we're both looking at Bill. I'm like, under my breath, I'm like, I think he's drunk. <laughs> <laughs> But after we kind of figured out, all right, he's kind of serious. He's like, let me explain myself. He's like, you know, at this point, Bill knew he was going to be handing things over to Rob within the next few years. And Bill was really thinking about his legacy. And he's like, you know what? My parents' legacy is born in the liquid, right? Born in the liquid, born in the package. I get, you know, Bill Jr. is the reason why we are who we are today because of his genius and how he speaks to the brand, how he's advertised, the relationships he built. I mean, he really was the person that put us on the map. But Bill Jr. didn't want his legacy to be just rooted in that, right? The ad guy, the funny guy. He wanted to have more of a legacy. And he said, I want to have my own taste vision, just like my parents. And he's like, you know, I don't want to do a new mash bill. I don't. So all of a sudden, he's like, don't, you know, you guys need to help me, but I don't want a new mash bill. I don't want to age it longer. I don't want to change. I don't want to cast drink it. He's throwing up all these guardrails. I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? What the hell? <laughs> He's supposed to change it. Yeah. So he takes all, and, and oh, by the way, he said, and if you come to me with any of those things, I'm going to fire you. So <laughs> Kevin and I'm like, oh my goodness. Well, it just so happened the next week, we were meeting with Independent Stave, which is our Cooper, our barrel manufacturer, and they're a multi-generational family operation. So Brad Boswell was coming in of the Boswell family. And we were just talking about the next year's supply of barrels because you have to be one to two years ahead of like your barrel needs because you know we air dry all of our wood for a minimum of nine to 12 months before you can even use it to build a barrel. So anyway, we're talking about all that. We're like, Brad, man, listen to what Bill has tasked us with. And after he stopped laughing, and he asked, he's like, was he drinking? We're like, uh, <laughs> no. And he's like, I have some ideas. He's like, do you guys pay any attention to what we do on the wine side? And of course, Kevin and I were like, <laughs> wine side. Yeah, right. And he's like, no, I'm serious. He goes, you guys, you really need to pay attention. He's like, I tell you what. He goes, I have a wood chemist. And I mean, of course, Kevin and I were really chuckling then. You have a wood chemist. He's like, I have a wood <laughs> He's like, I'm going to send him over. And he's going to explain to you what we're doing on the wine side. So guy comes in and that's when he started talking to us about all these finishing techniques that they were doing on the wine side, whether it was, you know, cubes or staves or you name it. There were small barrels, all these things were like, oh, wow. Because Bill's thing was he just wanted to create his version of makers on steroids. He wanted it amped up. Mm. Right. So. We start looking at all these wood finishing techniques. And so in 2008, we started kicking off these series of projects to try to get to where Bill wanted just based on wood finishing, using core makers at that six years and then you know getting to that makers on steroids. So long story short, we ended up stumbling upon a process where you take a barrel of makers, you dump it out. So it could go to bottling for classic makers. But what we do is we pop the head off and then we have these French oak staves 
that these seared French oak staves that we'll take 10 of them and we'll attach them to the head of the barrel. We put the head of the barrel back on and then we put that makers, that classic makers back into the barrel. And so they're suspended in the juice. Yeah, they're suspended in the juice. And then we roll that. We need to cold age it. So we actually roll it into our cellar to age it at about 40 degrees for nine additional weeks. Wow. And so, you know, of course, back then we didn't have a cellar. Just we knew we wanted to use French oak. We also knew that French oak has eight, nine times the tannins in it. Mm -hmm. And the one thing we couldn't do is create something that had bitterness and you'll get bitterness from tannins. So we immediately were doing these projects during the winter time and aging them cold because we wanted the flavor from the French oak. We just didn't want the bitterness. And so through all of that, tons of different projects, we came up with this one version that was makers on steroids. So the amped up vanilla, the amped up caramel, and we let Bill taste it. And he had been tasting all along. We're like, Bill, we really think we've got it. And so Bill tasted it and he's like, by God, you're there. He's like, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. And so we're all high-fiving and everything else. And then Bill's like, well, I guess we, I guess we got to think about what we're going to call it now. Because, I mean, we're just operations people. I mean, we don't name anything. <laughs> and Bill's looking at the sample bottle. And all it said on the sample bottle was Maker's Mark Profile 46. Because it was literally just one of the barrel profiles, one of the project profiles that we were working on. Mm-hmm. And Bill's like, there we go. We'll call it Maker's Mark 46. And probably one of the worst ideas we've ever had because <laughs> this product's been around for 10 years and nobody understands what that 46 represents. So, you know, they think it's 46 proof, 46 months, but it was literally profile 46. So maybe you should that, have called it profile 46, profile 46. instead of makers. But it yeah. provokes the question. And you have 30 seconds of their time to tell them the origin story. True. It's the same deal with the, you're familiar with Tequila Ocho. Yeah. Nicholas Camarena and Thomas Estes. Uh, to everyone asks, Tequila Ocho, it was batch number eight. That's the one that worked for them. And so, hence, <laughs> you know, hence the name, but it gives them 30 seconds of a consumer's time. Right. It does. And it, and so we're, I mean, we're super proud of it. So, you know, the notes on this, you know, I've kind of said it, amped up vanilla and caramel. I get a lot of cherry notes, especially on the nose. It's oh, yes, bottled at very night. Much. Yeah. Where, you know, Classic Makers is bottled at 90. So, you know, where 46 plays, I mean, it, it's, you know, there again, it's any way you like it. But we see 46 a lot neat on the rocks and classic cocktails. Uh-huh. Yeah. It just kind of plays. But what that did, we had no idea, but we were the first ones to really go after wood finishing like this. Nobody mm-hmm. on the whiskey side was doing anything like it. And most people aren't doing it like us anyway. But Because we had these guardrails of not bastardizing where we started in 1954, it led us to this wood finishing technique, which then eventually led us to the wood finishing series, our private select program, you know, all these things that we can do from the wood finishing side that was born out of, we just didn't want to bastardize where we started. So when we talk about innovating and looking inward, that's what that means. It's like, we're looking inward. How can we do things that still tied back to who we are and, you know, how we started. So how did you decide on 94 proof? Uh, As you say, four points higher than uh, standard makers. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was literally just through tasting. We knew we didn't want to be 90. We knew we wanted to be a little bit higher than 90. Mm -hmm. We just wanted it to come through a little bit. And honestly, for, you know, everybody that worked on that project, we would do those samples blind from a proof standpoint and 94 proof was just where we ended up. It's literally where everybody felt like, what Bill was looking for and what we were working towards was expressed the best. Was it uh-huh. 94? Percent? Yeah, that's the sweet spot, as it were. Yeah. A little side note, uh, the Maker's Mark also 
was part of the original sizzle reel for Whiskey Chef's Journey. We had Samara Rivers. Oh, wait, now it's what is Davis. It? now Davis, Samara yep. Davis, as our whiskey expert yep. teaching Louise about Maker's Mark. And she used, we used the regular, we used the 46, and then we used the Black Urban Society's barrel pick. Yeah. So it was really good tasting. They did a private select barrel. Yeah, it was really good too. So this led into, you know, our barrel program is different from everybody else's. Literally, our barrel program is allowing people to do what we did with Bill to create 46 except we use different staves. Mm -hmm. We don't just use the same 10 staves. They're able to come in and pick the staves that they want to use. And so the the combination that Samara and Armand came up with ended up winning double gold at San Francisco. Right. I mean, it's really, really really good. And they've done that barrel multiple times. They don't even, you know, they don't have to show up anymore. There's like, Hey, we need another one of those, you know, is anyone else allowed to use those same staves or is it now like a proprietary? I don't know that they have, if it's proprietary or not, to be honest. Nobody else is. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Well, they'd have to, first of all, know which ones they picked, I guess, and how many of yeah, each. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. I mean, most people, if they're going to go through the process, they want their own. Yeah. You know, they want to be able to tell their own story because. I don't know. If they've tasted it, they may want to do it. Well, <laughs> it's really good. True. But it's also what you're looking for when you come in to create that barrel. You know, the accounts are, you know, how are you going to use the juice? And especially if you're a, a bar or restaurant, is it, you know, are you going to serve this in an old fashioned? Is this going to be spring, fall, right. summer, winter? You know, so there's a lot of different variations. Right. So, right. Is it a craft cocktail bar? It is. Is it a whiskey bar? Yeah. You know, because some things don't play well with others and some do. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed my liquor store, local bar. Well, that's a local bar right now. They're all closed. But the local liquor store has their own girl selected circus liquor. And I love walking in there going and seeing the circus liquor on their labels. I think it's so cute. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very experiential. And the whole private select program is just, you know, it's really what started probably 10 years ago where people were wanting to come in and pick their own barrels of established brands, whether it's Knob Creek, Elijah Craig. But because of how we do things operationally, you know, I could roll out five barrels of Maker's Mark that are all six years old. And because we do barrel rotations, they all taste the same. Right. Whereas, you know, if you have other products that are all, let's say, six years old, but they've aged at different floors of the warehouse, they're all going to taste different, even though they're all the same age. Mm-hmm. We wanted to have the same relationship and allow consumers to do that. We just couldn't do it in the traditional way. So that's where Jane specifically created that program working with Rob of how people could have their own barrel but yet do it in the fashion of 46 in what we did and what Bill did in creating that product. Mm-hmm. Now, we have two more expressions to taste. Yes. One is the maker's cask strength, and the other is the, the 2020 wood finishing release. Yeah. Let's do, so one of my favorite stories about when I came back to Makers, you got to remember. So in 2008, when Bill approached us about doing something different, he specifically said to me, if you come back and tell me you want to release a cast strength maker's mark, I'm going to fire you. So, <laughs> you know. So you came back and said, we want to do a cast strength. <laughs> it was already out. And so the funny thing about it was, you know, Bill, Bill handed the reins over to Rob and Rob loves cast strength. He's a lot like me with his palate. He likes higher proof. And so Rob basically, obviously, is going to trump his dad at that point. And he's like, we need to release a cast strength. And of course, Jane's there working with them. They're high-fiving each other. Here I am working at Heaven Hill going, I wonder who got fired over that decision. (laughs) Uh, And so when I came back, this is one of the first questions I asked. I'm like, all right, how did you guys, how did you get the cast strength? And then, you know, they explained, well, when, you know, when Rob kind of took the reins, this was 
a real passion project of his. And so that's what we ended up with. You know, we've seen this evolve as well, right? Like people have grabbed, they love really more of the natural barrel. And you know, there's nothing more impactful than a cast strength right out of the barrel. As distillers, it's our favorite because it's the true expression of the whiskey. And yeah. so what's different about our cast drink isn't in the process or anything else. It's just the fact of the proof. Mm-hmm. So you know, there, there are things that we do that nobody else would do, um, either because it's too labor intensive or it's too damn expensive. And one of the things that we do is we go in the barrel. When we go to age, we go in at 110 proof, right? To be a bourbon, you just have to be 125 or less. You just mm-hmm. can't be over 125. Right. We could go in at 125. And this is no joke. If we decided to go in at 125 rather than 110, this last year, we would have saved $10 million. Wow. Okay. Because you buy less barrels and you need less warehouse space. So it's a very expensive decision to go in at 110. That being said, we know that that's who we are. That's how we started. It's the best way to express our taste vision. We're not going to change it, right? Then you throw in the fact that we rotate barrels, which means all of our new barrels, when they get filled at 110, a typical bourbon warehouse is six floors tall. So all of our new barrels going in will spend the first three summers in the top three floors. So floors four, five, and six. When I talk about barrel rotation, what that means is after three summers, we will rotate those barrels down to the lower three floors. So floor six will go to one, five will go to two, and four and three, depending on the warehouse, sometimes we flop those, sometimes we can leave them because the microclimate doesn't vary that much. But because of that, we can kind of really equalize what you lose to angel share over Mm -hmm. the next year. So we're going to lose, we're still going to lose you know, roughly 25% to evaporation. It's just, we'll lose equal shares of water and alcohol. So when that barrel gets dumped, we're going to be pretty damn close to 110, right? So a lot of other bourbons will go in at 125, but then their barrel strength might be 140 or above. And typically it's because they've spent most of their time at the top of a warehouse where you're going to lose a lot to evaporation, but you can lose a lot more water than alcohol. So that shoots up. For us, it's very balanced. And so it's going to always, we're usually around 108 to 112. And so that cast drink, that's what you're getting. You're getting really the the most natural state of our whiskey that you could get Mm -hmm. because we don't do anything and we don't. I think I poured too much for this time of day. (laughs) (laughs) That's on you, Karen. I'm feeling it. That's on you. Uh, And I'm using the wee ones, the wee glasses, the wee Glen Karens. You're not supposed to fill them to the top. No matter how small they are. <laughs> what year <laughs> What year was this introduced? I want to say, Philip, I think it was 15. Okay. All right. Or four, 15, I think, roughly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Out of these four, I know we haven't had the fourth one yet, but out of these four, which is your favorite? Well, we haven't had the fourth one yet. As a segue, as a bit of segue to the fourth, we've, the Cocktail Collection and the Center of Culinary Culture have done a couple of programs with makers over the last two or three years. I know that there is a Cask Strength Makers 46. Yes. I know because the Cocktail Collection owns a bottle. Yep. That remains sealed. Can you talk to us about that and the role it plays in the recent evolution? Yeah. So, I mean, we did a, you know, not a huge release of the 46 cask this year. The main thing about that was a celebration of the 10 year anniversary of Makers 46. Mm -hmm. 
So that's really what that was about. It's really, it allows us, you know, anytime you release a new product like that, it gives you the opportunity to talk about your core products. Mm-hmm. That 46 cask, people see that. And then it'll let people ask questions about it. And you're like, well, let me tell you, that's about the 10-year anniversary of Makers 46. And let me tell you about Makers 46. So the cask is really a celebration of the 10-year. That being said, we are looking to that to be a normal release, not mm-hmm. anything large scale, but continue to be nationally distributed. You know, don't look at it as being an Easter egg or anything like that, but something <laughs> that, that could be something that available. Yeah, yeah, now it is an homage to Bill Samuels Jr., correct? In fact, it carries his name. It's a celebration to Bill in the 10-year anniversary when we released Makers uh, 46 back in 2010. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's it's good. I mean, it's good juice. And what's funny is if you come to our distillery, we sell bottles of private select that we just kind of do in-house, you know, just for people that are because, you know, one, they're not going to buy their own barrel or do anything like that or spend the time. So we will actually create some and then sell those expressions in the gift shop. We sell one that's called the Bill Samuels Jr. Private Select. Mm-hmm. It's make our cast strength. Yeah. The 46 cast strength, correct? Yeah, 46 cast. We have sold that in the gift shop for a few years. We just never said that it was 46 cask. It was mm-hmm. just Bill Samuels Jr.'s private select. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so here's a question. Minus all of the private select people, because that's a lot of different versions, but how many expressions do you guys have all together besides the individuals? Those? Well, let's see. So we've got Maker's Classic. We've got Maker's Cask. We've got Maker's 46. We've got 46 cask. We've got Maker's Mark 101, which is a new release, and you'll see more of that. It was mainly global travel retail. So that's Maker's Mark at 101 proof. Yeah, it's got a beautiful box. You guys Isn't it great? It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really proud of that package. And then, you know, we're doing, and we'll taste it, we're doing this annual wood finishing series release, which last year we did RC6. This year we've got, you know, the what we're going to taste, which is the SC4 PR5. So, I mean, even though that liquid's different, that wood finishing series will, is something established now. Mm-hmm. Nice. And I think that's outside of, you know, locally around Derby time, we'll do a mint julep release, a pre-mix just here in the state of wow. Kentucky. Okay. A bottled cocktail or the mod- modifying agent? I mean, it's one we've done. We've done it for years, mainly just for the state. And I'm talking maybe a thousand cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So we do, we typically will do that annually as well. Mm-hmm. I think that covers it. Okay. I mean, it's not a lot. I mean, you know, and all of those are born out of, you know, that the Maker's Classic. Yeah, the Maker's Classic. Mm-hmm. You got it. Mm-hmm. You got it. All right. Then I think we should taste the 2020 limited release wood finishing all series. Right. Yeah. So, yes, let's talk about that. Yeah. So what this is, is this is the second release in our wood finishing series. So the first one was 2019 and people that have followed it would know it as the RC6. So what the wood finishing series is, And this is definitely the brainchild of Jane and what she's learned in wood finishing plus working with independent stave is she wanted to create a program where we could tell the story of production through wood finishing. So, and what that means is last year with RC6, the focus was yeast and the yeasting process. Mm -hmm. And if you're ever at a distillery and you have an opportunity to taste the jug yeast, it's very flavorful, right? It's very hoppy. It's very fruity. There's all these things. So, you know, how could we create a product that would tell the story of yeast? So they started out, they set out to create something that was very fruity, bright, spicy, you know, just something that kind of told that story. And so it took two years to create the product. 
But in 2019, we released RC6. And all what that stood for, once again, because we're horrible at naming things, <laughs> because we have this relationship with Independence Day, they actually opened up a research center about nine miles away from us mm-hmm. oh, wow. where we can work directly with them on stave development and everything else. So this stave that they develop utilizing our wood finishing practices was research center stave profile number six, uh-huh. RC six. Mm-hmm. So that nice. was released. And like I said, it just kind of tells the story of you. So this year we wanted to tell the story of seasoning, seasoning from the barrel side. So when we talk about seasoning, It means we take that white oak and we sit it outside, let it season and oxidize and break those tannins down and break other things down inside the oak before we use it to build a barrel. And so because we wanted to tell the story of seasoning, we know that as you break down lignans into vanillin, you get vanilla. As you break down the hemicellulose, you get caramel, right? And then the one thing we knew we wanted to be, we had to be tannin free because we did not, you know, that's a big thing for us is no bitterness, so tannin-free. So what we found out was we couldn't do it with just one stave. And what Jane and Andrew with Independent Stave and Beth, who works for Jane, what they figured out was, okay, we really need to create something that's heavy vanilla and then create something that's heavy caramel and then blend those barrels together. So it's really it was really our first ever blended release. Okay. So we have some barrels that were created with a PR5 stave, which is American oak. And then we had other barrels that are created with the SC4 stave, which is French oak. Mm -hmm. And then you can blend those together to get this product. So on this, this is our second wood finishing series, telling seasoning, heavy vanilla, heavy caramel, tannin-free. And what I'll say about this, this is my favorite release that we've ever done (laughs) because it is, I mean, you put your nose in it. There's so much vanilla in that. It's ridiculous. And then- when you taste it, it's got an extremely creamy finish. Mm-hmm. It's got a velvety mouthfeel to it that I love. I mean, I, I'm big about mouth finish, and this has one of the best mouth finishes of any product I've ever been associated with, and I just love it. I mean, it's all those things that I love. I love heavy vanilla, and this is on the nose. is such an intense vanilla, and then it really comes through on the flavor. It is. Well, it does kind of remind me of the holidays with all the uh, with all the baking spices. Yeah, for sure. oh yeah, definitely get some baking spices in there as well. Yeah, a bit of burnt caramel. Mm-hmm. The mouthfeel is extraordinary. And if you just add a little bit of ice, mm-hmm. I was going to say I think I might put a one of those giant slow melting. Yeah, as the ice melts, the creaminess just gets enhanced. Like I'm just every time. I mean, I am obsessed with drinking this right now. So, so how many bottles are you going to keep before it's gone? <laughs> But in reality, I just love to drink this every single night. Wow. I'm worried because we don't have, I mean, obviously we released this. Mm-hmm. We don't hold any back. I do have four bottles. and That's it? Yeah. I don't know what to do. I, <laughs> I am trying to ration, but man, it's tough. So the 2019, yeah, the 2019 is gone. Yeah. The 2019 is gone. We do have some bottles of that around. I say that we do keep a little bit around, but I'm not, I'm talking maybe a couple cases. Sure. Archival. Exactly. Now this sits at 110.8 proof. Yeah. Is that cask strength? Yep. These are all cask strength. Okay. Nice. All right. Now would you cocktail with this? I would. I mean, here's my thing. And I mean, I'm the world's worst bartender, mixologist, whatever you want to say. Right. So I will always drink this neat or on the rocks. It's just I'm lazy. (laughs) I'm bad at mixing drinks. You name it. It's how I prefer it. The toughest thing about this pandemic for me professionally 
is I would love to go out and taste what these, you know, professional people are doing with this wood finishing series and cocktails. Yeah. yeah. And under normal circumstances, you spend a fair bit of time on the road. Yeah. So you get to experience the best in cocktail making around the country. So I'm typically on the road once a week and people will always ask, what's your favorite cocktail? And I always say, and it's the God's honest truth. There's nothing I love more than when I'm traveling and you walk into an account. They're just excited, right? They have, you know, somebody from the distillery that's there. And I'm like, Give me what you got. What's your favorite maker's cocktail? Mm-hmm. And literally sitting there, like I said, it is experiential. Mm-hmm. And having them talk you through how they created this cocktail with makers in mind. And that's my favorite cocktail. No matter what it is. I got, understood. What's in front of you. Whatever's in front of me, whatever right. they created. And then the story they're telling me as we're having it. I mean, it's it's my favorite. It's the one thing that I miss more than anything about traveling is really getting to connect with people that are phenomenal about this. Let's face it. If it wasn't for the cocktail side of this business, we sure in the hell wouldn't be sitting where we are right now. Right. Oh, cocktails move product. Yeah. Absolutely. And so people that are still stuck on this, oh, you got to drink it neat or on the rocks. Bullshit. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, that's, I get it, whatever. That's you. But I'm telling you, I mean, you got to try what people, I mean, because people, it's, I mean, there is a bit of artistry to this. Oh, yeah. So to be able to, and these are careers now, right? I mean, people are with these mm-hmm. accounts and, you know, just the money, the revenue you can make, it's phenomenal. So why not sit back and let them show you what they're really good at? Mm-hmm. And I love, it. listen, anytime I don't have to talk and they can talk to me about makers and what they're doing, I freaking love it. That's my mm-hmm. favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I love to hear what people want to do with your stuff. Yeah, That's cool. Me too. Yeah. You compose the work, they perform it. Ah, right. Uh, <laughs> my job's easy. I mean, it really is. The way that people, and Jane's like this too. I mean, she's just, you know, very creative in how they utilize, you know, the liquid. And I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. It amazes me. Funny. I mean, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm an operations guy. So, Of all the makers and blenders we've interviewed on Spirits of Whiskey, you are the first to give that as an answer. Yeah. Favorite cocktails or oh, that's- favorite category. It's uh, whatever's in front of me. Yeah. You know, because you're getting a human expression. Yeah. You're getting an artifact from the heart, if you will. Oh, yeah. And they're all legitimately good. I mean, I'm not saying that like, honestly, it might be the worst tasting cocktail in the world. I'm not tasting that because I'm listening to what they're telling me and how they created it. I'm like, man, this is, it's just, I don't know. Right. But if you put good product in, you'll get a good product out too. So. You know, that's the beauty of our industry is how social it is. And, you know, just the connections you can make with people mm-hmm. doing various different things within the industry all over the world. I mean, it's, I don't know of any other industry like it. And I mean, I thank God every day that I get to work in it. I mean, it's phenomenal. Well, I'm going to say after tasting all four of these, I can definitely taste the classic throughout. Mm-hmm. After I like looked for it, you know, I was like, oh yeah, no, there it is. I, I also like to pour them and then go back and forth between. And ironically, my favorite two are the 46 and the 2020 and they have the same bottle shape. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what that means. Hmm. Putting everything that I like the best in the same yeah, bottle yeah, shape. I can't sit here and tell you that it had an impact on the liquid, but we can roll with that. I mean, it's- <laughs> <laughs> talk to us about bottle shape. It's a good looking bottle. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to have to look for everything that comes in this bottle shape now and try that first because apparently everything that you put in that bottle shape is going to be for me. 
talk to us about bottle shape because you have the standard bottle shape uh-huh. that you use for some of the line yep. and you have this more than you know the squared and you have this more rounded that you use for certain other expressions can you talk to us about that yeah it's taller a little flatter it's great packaging and packaging is fascinating in and of itself and the decisions that lead to it literally i think when you see the more rounded bottle like the 46 bottle Pretty much anything that we're going to release that involves wood finishing, for mm-hmm. the most part, is going to be in that style pack. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Right? All right. All right. So, and that's why, and I don't know if you've noticed, but like with the classic makers, we just changed our package on the cast strength back to the classic makers bottle. Uh-huh. Oh, it wasn't in this bottle before? I don't know which bottle you have because we just... Well, it's in the same shape as the classic, but the label is small. Okay, yeah. Before, it was in more of an ornamental type bottle. Okay. I mean, you can obviously look it up. You can see the difference. I mean, it's not a huge difference, but it's different. So we just moved that cask back into the classic for a lot of why you guys are asking it, because that is, you know, it's an expression of Maker's classic that did not involve wood finishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes sense. So all of the wood finished expressions are in the more rounded, yeah. or dare I say, French. Yeah, I mean, it's a... There's a continental look about these. Yeah, the 46 bottle is a beautiful bottle. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not as operationally friendly as we'd like it to be, but uh, <laughs> it's because it, you know, the way that it's built, you get a lot of tipping that occurs on the bottling line. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's not very well friendly. Yeah, it's heavy in the shoulder, so you typically have to slow your lines down so you don't get any tipping on the line. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a beautiful package for sure. Yeah. So last question about the wax. I know that like 4th of July, I've seen the red, white, and blue. Various different colors do you guys use throughout the year for special? Well, there was a time where we did a lot of different, typically they're double dips. On occasion, we would do the triple dip, which is the red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't do as much anymore. So here's the problem with multiple dipped bottles. One is people won't drink them. What? Commemorative. They want to have them, yeah, pretty insane. You know, there are a lot of times where we have to go on allocation because we just don't have enough juice to put out to the market. So anytime you're putting something out, you want to make sure that people are drinking it. The other problem you have with those is by nature, opening a bottle with wax on it, if it's not done right, can be a difficult thing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be somewhat labor intensive to get it open. So, mm-hmm. but what we do do is we typically will do double dips and they're usually related to somebody winning a professional sports championship. Uh Okay. So that's really what we've relegated it to. So just like when the Lakers won the NBA title, we will do uh, purple and gold double dips. Uh I did see that one. Yeah, yeah. So you guys should should have seen it out there. Same thing with Major League Baseball, the NFL. So we don't do a lot of it. I mean, we might do total double dips, maybe five to 10,000 cases on an entire year. Uh Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they just go out. It's a targeted market, but they'll go out. We don't do near what we used to. When I was here the first time, we actually did double dip bottles for every NFL team. And we sent them every NFL market. Wow. And the problem was, when they would get to the liquor stores, you know, down in Miami, they'd be like, hey, come get your Miami Dolphins Maker's Mark bottle. Well, we ended up getting a letter from Paul Tagliaboo, a cease and desist that said, you guys can't do that. <laughs> you know, you're marketing these as NFL bottles and we're not seeing a dime from you. So, Aww. but that's not, I mean, it obviously yeah. it, that wasn't that big of a deal, but, oh, Lord. but they're pretty cool. Yeah. So he waxed financial. He did, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> this has been, I don't think glorious is too strong a word. This has been glorious. No, I don't. It's been fantastic. Well, I appreciate that. You guys have been all awesome. good. Time. This has been fun. Thank you, Pots. Yeah. <laughs> Pots butter. Hopefully when the pandemic is over, we can start making rounds to everyone's places of work where we've hosted on the show because we would love to do follow-up. We'd love it. I mean, I know you're talking about getting chain on. It'd be awesome. You guys could do it here on site. That would be a lot of fun. That would be wonderful. We'll have the car pull around, yeah. you know, yeah. and then we'll hop in. Oh, Denny, a pleasure. <laughs> a pleasure. Thank you so very much. Thank you, guys. Truly enjoyed it. Hey, Louise, how are you this week? I'm doing well. How you been, Carrie? I'm good. We just talked to the wonderful folks over at Maker's Mark, and we had four different drams that we tasted. So we sent those over to you and wanted to know which one of those fabulous beauties was your choice for this week, and what did you make with it? Well, this week I chose the Maker's Mark Wood Finishing Series 2020 Limited Release. Ah, that was a good one. It's hot. It's 110 proof. 110.8. Yes, it it was hot. It was hot to try. <laughs> It was hot to trot, but with some little bit of sweetness going on, as always with the makers, right? Right. So I found really, I mean, the vanilla and caramel was super pronounced on this one for me, like even more so than normal with their whiskeys, which I was fine with because it was so hot. And then, you know, I'm, I was kind of racking my brain like, I guess I could use this in a cocktail, but then I didn't know if I should kind of mix something that's got all, you know, that's exceptional like this with other stuff. So I felt right. like, oh no, I, you know, I should probably just have a dram of this and call it a day, in which case I was thinking about a simple dessert of cheeses. I mean, there's this is not really as much as what I'm going to make as what I would probably, while drinking this, be a little too drunk to make anything anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that proof. I mean, have a couple sips here on the floor. You know, I figured if you had yourself a nice dinner party of whoever's in your pod these days, right? And prior to your dinner, if you put together a nice cheese board, you could put some nutty Gruyere that'd be really good with the caramel notes, something like soft and creamy, a little bit mild, like a camembert. You could put a, you know, a slight amount of funk with a Roquefort, but I wouldn't go too crazy on anything too like funky, chunky with this. But if you made a cheese mm -hmm. board and then got yourself some really, I, I just had a batch of of perfectly ripe pears recently and they were so juicy and delicious and I was thinking some really great ripe fruit and then if you wanted to get frisky maybe the day before doing this you make yourself a homemade brittle of sorts I would use pecans I would probably put some sage in there I tend to like an herb in my brittle and if you put this nice. all out you know and everybody sat around with a little dram and munched on some cheese I think I think you'd that'd be a nice way to finish a really pleasant meal. That sounds fantastic. And of course, I don't know anything about any of those cheeses. So I would be excited to go try them with a, with a dram. You, you've you never heard of any of those cheeses. I've heard of the first one. Um, <laughs> I don't think I heard of the other two. No, I'm, I like my cheddar and my Colby Jack and my, my pepper Jack. That's, that's my cheeses. I know, but I have to make fun of you. You need to get out more and you need to eat more cheese. I do need to get out more, but so does the rest of the world. Well, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful education on cheese that I obviously need. And I can't wait to try it with the whiskey because I still have plenty left. They were generous and sent an, uh, an entire bottle of all four of them, which was 
fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we'll catch you up next week when we talk about the next dram. Till the next time. Cheers. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.